welcome to the Intuitive Insights podcast series. I'm Nina Lockwood, founder and director of Intuitive Interim and Executive Search. Throughout this series, I will be sharing engaging conversations with talented leaders from across the UK transport sector. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Debbie Francis, OBE, City Exec for the North for Arcadis and a non-exec and chairperson for a number of different organisations. Debbie Francis, OBE, hello and welcome to the Intuitive Insights podcast. It's an absolute delight to see you. Thanks, Nina. It's nice to see you too. <laughs> um, it's it's a real pleasure for me to have you as a guest on the virtual couch uh, for the pod because um, I am well known. I think my accent probably gives it away a little bit, as will yours, but I am well known for my passion for the North and I know that this is a passion that we share. Um, and so in your current role as City Exec for the North for Arcadis, I want to hear more about about that. I know that you're a non-exec and chair for a, a number of different organisations as well. I know that you've won awards for being super fabulous um, and I also know that you've got an amazing reputation for the work that you've done around diversity and inclusion and championing the women's cause as well for, for gender balancing in what is still quite a heavily male-dominated industry sector. Um, we're making progress but just perhaps not quick enough for you and me. So um, in time on a tradition um, I want to pass over to you to talk us through your career story. I'd like to know where did it start? How specifically how did you get into the transport industry? Um, and talk to me about the roles that you've done and the role that you're currently doing with Arcadis. Uh, thanks, Nina. Even I am quite impressed with myself when you introduce me like that. Like that, it's like oh, no, you should be. I was quite good. And <laughs> <laughs> also, it's still one of those things. You know, maybe it's maybe it's just the the female side of side of us. Remember, I still feel slightly embarrassed when you hear those lists like that. So it's interesting. Mm -hmm. So, uh, my career um, today. Well, it didn't start off great. Um, and I I actually. It's one of the things I'm probably most proud of, but I started off from a pretty tough background. Um, and um, I used to sound um, like a real heavy Liverpoolian, of course, that's all gone now, you can't tell. <laughs> the, I, I left school at 16. Um, I only had three GCSEs. I basically hadn't been to school for the last year, lots of difficulties at home, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I lived in a, a you know, a, 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 I suppose you class it as a rough place to some extent. Um, and I left school at the, the height of unemployment in this country, the highest it's ever been, even to this date, back in 1982, uh, during the Thatcher years. And um, <laughs> three, three days and no choice but to go out to work for all sorts of reasons, you know, uh, that was the nature of the family. So, and no jobs. So I got a yop, which um, some of your audience will remember. So it was the first, I think it was like the first ever government job creation scheme, youth opportunities programme. They followed it. The one that came after that was the youth training scheme, the YTS. Because they realised, the yeah, so they realised, now you're saying you're younger than me. They realised the yop, <laughs> <laughs> the yop didn't really give you very many skills. Um, whereas the training scheme at least gave you that, I think, a day out, didn't it, at college and stuff. So... So I did that and, um, and it really wasn't ideal and it was a really dull um, clerking type, clerk type job in the civil service. 
And I was like, I'm, I'm never going to be, you know, what am I going to do in my life? I can't do this type of job for my life because it's going to drive me nuts. So I, um, I enrolled at night school. So through the next five years, I went to night school for five years. Uh, I held down full-time job. I worked in a bar two nights a week and I was an Avon lady um, <laughs> where I lived. So um, it, it was pretty, pretty intense five years. But you know, you have plenty of energy don't you? between 16 and 21. The energy is not something you're short of. So, so I eventually got enough qualifications um, through some more GCSEs and then a BTEC national with distinction to be accepted into Liverpool Poly. Right. business studies so I gave up the job took a mature student grant um and an offer went to Liverpool Poly for four years I did four years I did the year out even though they said I had industry experience because I'm not sure I would class it as industry <laughs> but I also I wanted to stay with my friends so I wanted to, to stay in the same year I didn't want to skip the year so I did business studies specialized in finance in the last year because it was the thing that just sat the easiest with me I realized you know finance made sense and and from day one, when I did my BTEC, which was also in business studies, I recognised debits and credits that just worked in my head. And so <clears throat> I specialised in finance and decided I wanted to become an accountant. So that was the, the hardest job search I'd ever had because I was traditionally back then um, to get a job as a trainee accountant. You really did have to have, you know, your GCSEs. Oh, they weren't then O levels. Um, see, I'm even calling. I never called them GCSEs. I'm calling them GCSEs now. It was an O level. <laughs> you had to have your O levels, your A levels, and have been to university basically, and and get through. You had to have that kind of standard approach, and I didn't. But I was really fortunate to be um, recognised by a training partner in the company called Panelcare Forster, who at the time were part of the top ten because we didn't have the big four and things then. It was a top ten in Liverpool and they gave me a training contract so I trained to become an accountant now I never intended to stay as an audit manager or anything that was never kind of I was always going to make it big in business <clears throat> so um, I then you know moved on from there <clears throat> excuse me and um, I, I took one job initially that, that wasn't a great move um various reasons and I and I, I moved and I went to work for I went to work for um, um, a company where I had to go up to Scotland to present financials on a quarterly basis to a big oil company in Scotland up in Aberdeen and I fell in love with Aberdeen and decided that we should move I'd been living in suburbia for too long with my partner we weren't married at that point we have living too long in suburbia I wanted to change I loved the coastline off we went to Aberdeen and I went to work for an American corporation right. and they were an IT company but I was working in finance obviously and um, they were much they were a bit more than an IT company they were a science application business um and massive massive american corporation um and and that was where we began to get real success i suppose the americans view things very differently to we did so they didn't recognize my accent and that was a positive because back then the liverpool accent did still have a lot of connotations and bias to it um and and i think fortunately i think we've moved away from from bias, mostly moved away from bias against accents. But back then, there was still a lot of bias around accents. Mm -hmm. um, and the Liverpool thing had a lot of bias around it. And of course, I was a female, and this is a long time ago, and that also had its had its difficulties. And I was, uh, I was probably a bit on the loud side. Let's <laughs> describe it, a bit on the loud side. So- um, You made your presence known, Debbie. <laughs> Yeah, wasn't easily missed. <laughs> so, um, so 
and, and I'm also, I wasn't eating this because I'm also, I'm extremely tall. So, so that also tends to mean that you tend to take over space and sort of things. So I'm slightly shorter now, but I was six foot one back in the day. And back then that was really tall. You know, our, our kids have gotten taller, but I was really um, a little bit um, noticeable back then. So um, I went to an American company, but they don't see the, they don't, they didn't care. They were definitely more ahead for the women's point of view. And they don't see, um, they didn't see the accents. I was working for them in Scotland when they met me. So every time they introduced me to people, they didn't introduce me as Debbie from Scotland. Which of course massively offended my Scottish colleagues. <laughs> all like, she's not from Scotland. <laughs> like, no, I never said I was. <laughs> so, um, so I went to work for them. And that was where I, I really did get a big break. And I, I worked really, really hard for them. But I did get the promotions and the break. And eventually I got called up, um, having helped out with a problem in this country, I got called up by one of the, uh, the key people from the States to say, would I go to Venezuela to sort out and help them with the financial aspects on a new contract they've just signed, a joint venture with Pedavesa. So a week later, I found myself in Venezuela and didn't come back for three years. Oh, my God. So, um, and that was really difficult, really exciting, you know, I remember bursting into tears about week two in a bread stall because in Venezuela, you know, they don't speak English. I mean, they literally don't. There's hardly anybody speaks English. Right. And I found, I was on my own. We hadn't realised I was going to be there that long at this point. And I was waiting for my husband to, to pack up the house and come and join me and all of this. Yeah. Trying to get a loaf of bread. And I was in the bread shop, so there's only so many things you could buy. And she couldn't seem to understand me. And I'm pointing at the campesino and it's like, you know, how hard can it be? And I suddenly realised I could run a one and a half billion pound finance department, but I couldn't get a loaf of bread. And, you know, you just have those moments. Yeah, Yeah, it just makes it real. Yeah. (laughs) So so, um, I got over that little hiccup and had a most fantastic time. I did two years in Venezuela and for various reasons, changing the political scene there, etc., uh, the American company I worked for moved us all out and I went from there to New Orleans and I worked in New Orleans with them for a year where my son was born. Um, so when he was born, I wanted to come home um, and we came back um, and I worked. I spent then quite a long time where I worked up in Scotland, but we bought a house back in the northwest because my husband wanted to be back with our friends and family and he was looking after our son. Yeah. And I finally said, oh, um, so I, I don't want to keep the traveling. I'll try and find a job. In, you know closer to home <laughs> so never really panned out I found a job closer to home in Leyland and instantly they packed me off to London for two years yeah. so it was that point I realized I needed to just live in the place I wanted to live and and tell companies I wasn't prepared to move for the job but I was happy to travel and that's what I then did so I worked for a, um, an infrastructure maintenance organization for nearly 10 years actually right made my way up to finance director for with a joint venture for them on a fantastic project um with the mod to do with housing stock maintenance for service families um and then after about 10 years i just you know beginning to feel it was i'd done a lot of different jobs so i hadn't felt like i'd been in one job for 10 years because i worked outside of that company in the joint ventures etc so it it felt to the 10 years but i decided it was time for change and I, i started looking around and a role came up for finance director for LNW. Um, so I applied, because then this is how I dropped into transport, because obviously as a finance specialist, you know, a lot of the key drivers of business are very similar. Yeah. Um, and as a finance specialist, you know, the process for producing financials remains the same no matter which business you're in. So you are able to shift industry a little bit. I think what makes it really 
what makes you really good at your job is your ability to to understand the business you're in and that allows you to read the numbers a bit like reading a book so I know that might sound like you know a little bit geeky in some ways but it's a bit like reading a book because you know what you're expecting to see you know what the what the numbers are going to portray so um it doesn't matter which industry you're going but you do need to learn about your industry and I'm fascinated by business so I went to work for LNW and the the, the rail industry I suppose transport overall but the rail industry has, has definitely become my passion um and, and it also gave me a big break. Four years in, I got approached by a headhunter um, for the possibility of being managing director, which is really where my, back from the age of 16, when I'd sat in that yacht going, I can't do this, which is where my ambition had, had set my sights. Nothing like having a lofty ambition. <laughs> it's where my ambition had set my sights. And um, and I jumped at it. It was a great company. The freight industry was, was great. It stayed in the rail industry and I jumped at it. Um, and I only left direct rail services because I decided I was going to go into business myself. Mm. I wanted to just to use some of some of the passion I had for training, developing, mentoring, coaching, and and look at how I help. And I, I come across so many women over the last ten years who have supported me. Amazing! It was the first time when I moved into rail industry. It was the first time I ever really got and felt like I had support around me. Mm. People. Who, who would look out for me or you know who can mentor and help me I've never had that previously I've just done it all on my own um and I just I just wanted to 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 carry that on and do some more of that but COVID came along um and it didn't pan out so I was lucky at the time to get approached by Arcadus when I was sitting there thinking now what am I going to do because I'd already resigned like what now and Arcadus came along and because I have got such a passion for the northern agenda they offered me that opportunity to stay involved in it and to keep, you know, poking that agenda, to keep being able to have my say on what I thought should be happening. Um, and, and I jumped at the opportunity to take that role while while it was all so uncertain. Um, and, it's, you know, so far it's been good. It's been good. Fantastic. Sorry, long, long, it's been a long life. <laughs> no, no, exactly. There's, there's so much in there. Um, I had I had no idea where you started. <laughs> I didn't know that. I also didn't know you'd been you'd done two years in Venezuela and a year in New Orleans either. Um, so for me, that is it's just brilliant to hear. And and I think that the fact that you're able to reflect and say that girl who was on that yacht scheme in a boring job as a clerk in the civil service has gone on this journey and and just kind of continuously how it how it looks to me is continuously said right okay and what now what now I've done that what now and using the skills and the other thing that I'm, that I'm, that's coming loud and clear for me is that along with with so many other people that I've met you've got this brilliant ability to be able to identify what your thing is and your thing is finance it's absolutely not my thing when you're talking about reading numbers I'm thinking I haven't got a clue what you mean here Debbie because it's not me do you know it, it's most definitely not me um but the fact that you were able to identify that you've got that self-awareness and you've grabbed hold of it and said this is what I want to do and that feeds into your passion for business because you are definitely not a bean counter you are a business person and clearly you're using the finance to support that because ultimately 
the bottom line is what we need to focus on. It's what we're here for. But it's all the other stuff that you can bring to that. I've loved hearing that story. Thank you. Um, we will the next part of our conversation we're going to move on to um, the rail industry itself more specifically um, we've got a huge amount of change and transformation going on it had already started obviously but then the pandemic has accelerated so many things um, and and kind of um, knitted together with the with what is now the Williams Shaps review was the Williams review going back to, to September 2018 so there was a recognition we needed to change back then obviously there's been some um, adjustments and some rewriting of the white paper which we eventually got uh, on the 20th of May um, what I'm really interested in from your perspective Debbie is to use your phrase what now what do you think what are your wishes and hopes for the rail industry knowing what you know um what what needs to happen next and if i could um, again in, in time honored intuitive insights podcast uh, fashion i'm going to give you three wishes for what you want to see changing in the industry so i'll hand over to you with that one three wishes so well you know i'm really excited about the william shaps and um lord him for getting shaps on the end of that that, that name he's got a legacy out there hasn't he so applaud to the shops there um i was really excited about the shops i spent many years looking at the rail industry and everybody else to say what's the answer i know from having worked in the industry it's not as straightforward as is often portrayed it's far more complex um you know i also understand that the, the the infrastructure of the railway has been in the hands of the taxpayer for quite a long time now you know it even before it you know when was it when i started it moved back onto the government balance sheet but even before then it was still it was a member body it was still in the government's control really so all this talk about you know you're bringing the infrastructure back in that's not quite right the infrastructure's been in the hands of the taxpayer for a long time you may not realize but it has but obviously the franchise system is is different in terms of traction and i'd always looked at it and thought it's not a bad thing because it keeps competition in terms of traction and services that you receive on the journey mm. it keeps the competition element so that keeps the service improving in terms of, of the experience that you have on the actual train and and i just thought and you know, it's all very well to say we'll take that back into government control. It's like the government has got such a huge call on its funds that mm. at the end of the day, if it has to invest, as an example, in, you know, X hundreds of millions of pounds on better Wi-Fi so that we can have better entertainment on a train versus putting it into educational health or roads or the actual infrastructure, which taxpayer is going to get behind that? Nobody. Okay, and quite rightly, so what we would see if we put the traction back into the hands of, of government as well is we would see a gradual decline. It may take a long time, particularly now we've got all this new rolling stock, but we'd see a gradual decline in that service because there's always competition for the government funds. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, some of those services are nice to have, but would never make the cut. So we would see a reduction. If we keep the competitive element in there, in order to, to get your, your train onto the track, we keep that competitive element. We keep those suppliers vying to get that service, which helps and makes them keep investing and improving in what we're going to get when we get onto that train. So, I, you know, I'd always looked and said, what's the answer to franchise? Because we take that away, we will remove the ability to get this service to go. So I'm, I'm really welcome 
the William Shaps review because it's managed to get that that great in between where at the end of the day you're still going to have to compete to put your train on but you're just paid directly by Great British Railways and aren't we all pleased to have that name back by Great British Railways you're going to be paid directly just for running the actual service so you're going to simplify life for the passenger you know <clears throat> we won't have any of this ridiculous ticketing issues you know the the system will be able to say you're going from here to here and we know the cost of that will be that regardless of which train you get on <laughs> you know all of those things fantastic you know it's, it's going to be a really great answer but it hasn't changed quite as much as people think mm. well because you know i say people are thinking well it's all going back into public side most of it already is so if i had three wishes i'd go cheaper fares okay i'd see i'd want the industry to see cheaper fares again i understand the the balance the government's got to get between subsidizing the railway like you know, out of taxpayers money with people who don't necessarily use it but it is an essential part of of um the economy and you know, it'd be interesting. So some people might say, well, I don't use the train, I drive. It's like, yeah, but if nobody used the train and we all drove, you wouldn't be wanting to drive anymore. So there is an element that even the person on the road benefits from the trains being subsidised. So it's never a straightforward black and white thing, is it? It just isn't. So um, they, I think I'd like to see cheaper fares, quite frankly. That would be high on my wish list. Um, The other thing I'd also like to say, and I know that it's really difficult to do, but as we wait for the IRP, um, I would like to see when that IRP comes out, I would like to see some form of, I don't know how we do it, but some way of fixing the long term plan for the investment so that it can't be changed. So that it can't, you know, five years down the line when government change, we can't just have another review of that plan. Mm some way that's saying no we've agreed as a nation that this is what we're going to do and this is what we're going to fund Mm -hmm. and it's going to take 20 years and somehow we find a way legislatively where that can't get changed because every time you know um, the the political dynamic change somebody says well we're going to have a review of that because you know it's been costing too much we all understand you know far better about how much those reviews cost how much the, the, the delay that a review puts in costs. It's millions of pounds daily when you start to say, we're going to just have a, we're just going to pause for a moment. It doesn't, it's not that straightforward to pause for a moment. And I also think that that allows some certainty. It allows certainty for businesses. It allows certainty for people. We know what's coming and we're not constantly going to second guess, well, they might cancel that yes. Oh, well, we're hoping that might happen, but it might not. So I would really like to see if there's any way we can determine that certainty. We know the work that we want doing. Everybody knows. We certainly know here in the north. You know, you speak to Transport for the North, they're absolutely clear about the work they were doing. You speak to all of the authorities, the combined authorities in the north, they're all clear about what needs doing. We all know you can't just do it all tomorrow. We don't have the capacity, the skills, we don't have enough money to just do it all tomorrow, but we could commit to the plan mm. and commit that we're not going to change. So I'd love to see that. I don't think it's very likely, but I would really love to see it. And then as my third wish, I'd really like some better weather at the moment. <laughs> so dire. Not liking having your eating on in the end of May then, Debbie. Right, yeah. <laughs> Just want some better weather, please. <laughs> I went out for dinner last night. Bearing in mind it was the 25th of May. I went out for dinner in a thick polo neck jumper and boots. 
<laughs> good lord i can make that my third wish that's what mommy yeah absolutely i think there'll be lots of people joining you on that one i think the um I, I really can um definitely agree with you on this integrated rail plan i think we've got the we've obviously we've got the william shapps review now of the report through um which is great because it gives us that indication that the guiding mind is being put into place this arm's length body um great british railways to give us that longer term vision for the industry um, the integrated rail plan is going to feed into that, isn't it, and tell us what's happening in the north. Um, it'd be nice to see it or at least know have an expectation of when it was appearing. But, you know, I kind of the um, what's that saying? The impossible I can do, but miracles take a bit longer. Um, so I think that I'm completely, utterly with you on this. And I know that Rhea are campaigning heavily to get this long term plan in place because the supply chain need it, We especially after the the last 15 months of of kind of being exceptionally challenging for businesses in the UK we would like to know if there's infrastructure spending to happen what we're spending it on where's it going to be where's the money going to be um, and therefore how can how can all the rest of the UK economy buy into that and support that so I completely agree completely agree yeah I mean, um, if you get that idea you also everybody you know the colleges the universities the apprenticeships they can all gear up for what we know we need to do and and I just you know I've said it once before a while ago in an interview when you invest this money it isn't like we're you know we're we're taking out of our wallet and setting fire to it you know we all know the majority of what gets invested into the country actually it's only about 40 percent of the actual cost that gets spent because of how much comes back etc and if you look at it over a very long time period you know the payback is phenomenal yeah. um and I just think, you know, and we know, I mean, it's great. The government's on for the levelling up agenda. And I think, you know, they've got no choice but to stick to that agenda, which I'm really pleased about. So I think all of that's fantastic. But I just think, um, you know, you can't do any harm by doing it. But they, every time we decide to make those second guesses of ourselves, we, we, co we cost money, you know, it costs the taxpayer money. Yeah. And it would that that whole industry strategy um, would would really support, as we've said, you know, the supply chain. But your point about schools and colleges getting people, because that is one of the massive challenges that we're facing as an industry. If all of this stuff happens and we had to get the, the spades in the ground tomorrow, we're not going to have enough skills. We won't have enough people. Where are we going to get them from? Well, we need to kind of that, that forward planning stuff. If we had that longer term plan, would be much easier, wouldn't it? To, I'm not saying it's easy, but it would be easier if we knew what we were aiming at. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my word, there's lots to do, Debbie. Flipping. <laughs> an exciting industry you know i know traditionally rail is still struggling to attract people into the industry you know we have a we have an aging workforce across the rail industry and it, and they still have difficulties attracting and we just need to do something about that because it's fantastic industry to work in and if you think about it you think about how much ground it covers you can actually be in any you could be in comms marketing you can be in retail you just go look at stations you can be in finance you can be all of the back office activities you can be you know obviously in general management you can be project management you know the engineers and civil engineers if you look at the range how come we can't attract people in it's like no matter what it is you want to do there's probably a job within the rail industry that we can fit and the rail industry is a secure industry. We are, you know, the rail industry is not going anywhere. 
Well, we might have our ups and downs, but it isn't going anywhere. Going anywhere, absolutely. We haven't learned how to how to do it up in the sky yet in terms of you know getting from A to B. So yeah, we have got planes, but you know from here from where I live to Manchester, that's never going to happen by flight for a long time. So the rail industry is here and it's here to stay, and it offers a career choice in every possible thing you can think of almost. Yeah. Why are we struggling to attract people? We've got an image problem, haven't we? At the end of the day, we've got an image problem. And I think from my perspective, and, and you know, I've, I've, I'm still quite a new girl. I've been eight and a half years in the rail industry now. I remember Karen Boswell, who was it, she was the MD at East Coast at the time, Karen saying to me, you're an evangelist for rail, Nina. I was just kind of, I'm, I'm just so passionate about bringing people into the rail industry from outside sector. And as a business, you know, 34% of the senior placements we've done have come from outside sector. So we've got that diversity of thought. We've got a different perspective. People are bringing in, as you said before, you know, there are transferable skills. Just because you've worked in a different industry sector doesn't mean you can come into rail. That's people who are already in their careers. But the stuff about attracting people at school level and as early as we can, not leaving it till they're choosing their, their GCSE subjects or their A-level subjects, but actually enthusing people early on. And there's some great stuff being done. I would just like to see more. That's what that if I had three wishes, I'd that would be my number one. Let's do more. I was just thinking about that. If you think about it, when when little ones are growing up, right? And I remember the hours I used to spend playing with train track with my son, the wooden stuff. Right? Yeah, yeah, the brio, yeah. Because yeah, I know how amazing is that the, the wooden stuff. We had everything, so we used to have this challenge. You know, we, had, we literally had hundreds of pieces, so we used to challenge ourselves to try and create a, a railway that used every single piece. We only have a little house, so it used to come out of his bedroom, <laughs> off the line. Used to have hours fun. We had bridges and gates, you name it. Yeah. But if you think about it, you think about how many children might play with train track when they're little mm -hmm. and how many times people say, you know, I want to be a train driver. OK, now, OK, if they all be, want to only become train drivers and not do other stuff as well, we might be a little bit scuppered. But it's there at that age. And between that age and leaving school, we've lost that. So maybe, you know, we're always aiming at, you know, the kind of people who are doing GCSEs. Maybe there's some room to say, why we're not talking, why we're not doing more in primary schools, for example. Yeah, and then, you know, and keeping that going all the way because yeah. they've actually got that at that point. Yeah. You know, they've got I it at that point. We yeah. might be able to keep it. And I know it's a long shot, but there must be something we might be able to do for all of those kids that think that's great to keep, to keep that thought in there that it's great, it's great, it's great all the way through. All the way through and there is some great stuff being done on early years there's some great Lydia Fairman at Network Rail's doing some fantastic stuff I know Karen Bennett who's on the community rail side of things in the north she's doing some great stuff but it feels like as an industry and maybe this can go on the list for Great British Railways maybe I'll maybe I'll see if I can get a wish list going with them but can we can we have some early years engagement would be amazing um, as part of this long-term strategy. We could talk for hours on this, Debbie, but I'm going to bring us back to the, um, the conversation and to reflect back on the last 15 months in relation to what we've been through. So both um, as an industry, professionally, personally, we've, we've, we've had this, um, I've not used this word for a long time, so I'm going to sneak it in, unprecedented level of change. Out of all of that, there's been some downsides. Obviously, there has. There's been some real, real tragedies um, and 
and, and I want to acknowledge that, but there's also been some learnings and some positives. For you, is there anything that you've learned about yourself over the last 15 months or about, you know, how you're living now or how you're working now that you want to hold on to as you move forward? Without doubt, I think everybody has. I think a couple of personally, it was interesting. I am an actually, actually an introvert. Um, people don't think I am, but, you know, obviously my career is required me to learn the behaviours that I can, you know, appear as an extrovert. But I'm an introvert. I'm one of those people that if you did lock me in a wardrobe for 24 hours, I'd be just fine. I'd just sit down in the dark and mull stuff over until somebody let me out. I'd be okay. So, um, but I'm not quite as introverted as I, as I thought. So it, it was quite a long time through lockdown before I began to feel a little bit hemmed in. Mm. And, um, and, and I, it, it did take quite a long time. But I think what I've learned is that I do appreciate the contact more than I ever realised. In addition to which, I think I also learned that the value of friends far more. I mean, I know we all know friends, but I've got a couple of very close friends and then don't, you know, have a lot of acquaintances. Those Many of those acquaintances have become actually better friends through this. Right. And I think it's because we all reached out to to connect on things that weren't just work and we've kept those things up so we you know we started doing social things through this forum that's actually just brought us closer together so I've made some more friends through this period that are are that I would now definitely class as close friends um, and I think it's made me appreciate the effort you have to make to make friends and to keep friends and I'll probably do that a bit better when we come out of those yeah. I certainly hope I'll do that a bit better. Yeah. And then the, the last thing I suppose is that, you know, I've I've been an advocate of IT and technology for years, trying to push people in that direction, partly because the American company I worked for, which was quite a long time ago, they obviously had embraced tech, um, technology a bit. So we did video, we did conference calls on the phone as a matter of course. Right. And we did video calls occasionally. And it was all really delayed back then. <laughs> so, so you'd have huge delays things. But we did it. Um, and, you know, through, through kind of necessity, when nobody else, you know, I was looking at other companies, nobody was doing it. And since then, I've always been an advocate of, of IT. And, you know, DRS was sick of hearing me talk about it, but they embraced it. You know, we, we got it everywhere. And consequently, when, when this happened, when COVID happened, DRS were able to go straight into, into working from home mode with yeah. no blips, et cetera, because we had done this. So I'm really pleased it's forced everybody's hands to do it. And it means that we can take talent and, and engage in activities further away from ourselves without always having to do the travel. Now, that's not to say you won't travel, but I just think it's helped us get that little bit of a better balance. Yeah. And I think when we come out of it, yes, we'll travel because we want to and we want to engage sometimes, but we'll also be able to fit a little bit more in because occasionally we'll go, no, that's just not worth the, the footprint I'm going to create. I'm going to do that from here. And I, so that combination of those two things is I'm really chuffed about because I've been pushing to want that for a long time and now everybody's yeah. mode with it. Yeah, I can definitely, I can relate to both of those. I think we've got more change to come, haven't we? As, as, as the world starts opening back up again and people start going back into the office, working out when do I need to be there? What do I need to be there for? 
um, different employers. It's interesting. I was I saw a survey yesterday that that um, CIPD had done, talking about the number of people who are expected to go back into the office, um, which was much higher than I was anticipating, sixty odd percent. So um, that was really interesting for me. Of people kind of yes, I, I want to go back. I'm wondering if that will peak and then it will start to tail off whilst we settle into. I go into an office for collaboration and then I, I'm at home to do the video conferencing and the stuff where I need to focus. Um, yeah. I reckon that'll take a, a few months to kind of settle down until we know where we're at. Yeah, and it, it's, it means we might have much nicer office spaces to go into as well because, you know, all of the desk desks can go to some extent, can't they? At the end of the day, if all you're going to do is go in and put your head down and do your email, you may as well stay in the comfort of your home, etc., and not clogged up the roads and the rail to a peak hour for it. But um, obviously, you know, you can go in for those times you need the connection and the innovation and you want to bounce ideas off. It's not, you can try it. I've done lots of sessions, you know, working sessions virtually. It yeah. just isn't quite the same. It no. doesn't have quite the same energy and dynamism. You know, like when you're leaping yeah. up, you're writing on the board and you're looking yeah. at people, you can't, you can't do that. You're here, you're doing this. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, but it's not the same. It lacks some of that energy that creates ideas and spark and all that sort of thing. So yeah. there's definitely a great, you know, midpoint to be made. And I think it's going to take a while to, to settle in. Um, but I think I think we just I think companies just need to think a little bit less about it and let it happen. And it will. Completely agree. So the final part of the of the podcast uh, conversation is in relation to leadership. So what I normally say to my guests is, tell me about your experience of leadership. How have you developed your own leadership skills? Um, you know, have there been people in your career who've, who've shown you how to do it? There'll presumably be some that have shown you how not to do it. When you and I were talking the other week and you told me the working title for your PhD being the irrelevance of leadership on performance, I thought, do you know what, we'll ditch that original question. <laughs> Because this is fascinating. Tell me a bit more, Debbie, about the irrelevance of leadership on performance. Um, okay, so the irrelevance of leadership on performance. I, I, I've always read a lot about leadership and management. You know, I did business studies. I've done, I, I did my MBA and things. I've always kept up with things to a point academically. And so I'd always read a lot about it and always wondered. I'd watched leaders around me and thought, I'm not seeing that there, I'm not seeing that there. But I, what really drove it home, I took part in around the world amateur yacht race. I didn't do the whole around the world. I did one leg of it. Um, and, um, but as part of the training for that, as well as the actual um, race leg that I did, I observed something um, about the, the skippers and the teams on the boats that didn't seem to fit very well with traditional theories around leadership. And the skippers are selected not for leadership skills. And that's a really great thing. They're selected for sailing skills. And trust me, many a time I was extremely grateful for that on our boat. But um, some of the skippers, you know, because you meet them all and you see them all. And sometimes you've trained with them at different points. So some of the skippers have more leadership skills or what you view as leadership skills than others. But I saw no correlation between the performance of the boats and the skippers in terms of leadership and it got me thinking basically 
what is it that creates the, the performance? Now, I all, you know, I know all about, you know, team performance theory, Baldwin's theories of team roles and storming and forming and everything else. But there were some difficulties in that that I couldn't see either. So this is an amateur, so the thing is, you, you also can't say, well, it's different in sport. These are amateur sailors. This is an amateur yacht race. The only professional was the skipper. Mm. So, and you've got a really, a really wide mix of people from all sorts of different backgrounds and all sorts of different ages. And um, and you also change out people in the team regularly because you have Legos. So you have a certain amount of call around the world as when you have Legos. So I couldn't quite see what created the great performance on the boat. And it got me thinking about traditional leadership um, and whether it really was the effect it was. And then I reflected back on my own experience. And I did what I did on my own. All the way. I, I, you know, I for people that you know if you look at leadership theory you say they were terrible leaders did it make a difference to what I did well it didn't so I still did what I did now you know that was something personally me about what I was intended to do where my ambitions were but the leadership that I saw did not change what I did right as a, in my performance mm. basically and that got me thinking you know there's something not quite right here so I, I went off to Manchester Met and proposed a PhD to them and they obviously think there might be something in it as well um and and I've started looking at that and looking at you know that social construct we you know we like to believe in leadership okay there's a social construct around us that's going to be there and we still although leadership has moved in theoretically and academically most people, if you talk to them about leadership, still have that traditional social construct and believe that there's certain traits and abilities that make a leader. Yeah. Theory has moved in on. But if you speak to people, that's still their ideology. It's about traits, it's about things. And, and you know, basically, um, um, you know, it's not to say people don't have those traits. My argument is, do those traits really make a difference? Yeah. You can have them and it might make you a great person. But is it actually going to be the thing that changes the performance? So that's that's what I'm looking at. My word, this is a fascinating subject. And there is, I mean, you know, the, the subject of leadership, um, you know, that could that could keep you going actually on around the, the world yacht race. It that that conversation, you could start it, couldn't you, on day one and still not be done by the time you got home. Yeah, well, hopefully the research is going to follow one of the racers and a group of people on the racers and explore that. And then at the if if it goes according to plan and then at the end of that I will if I if I discover something through that research I'll be seeing whether that can actually be translated from that set of conditions into a normal organizational or working environment that's fascinating I am looking forward to hearing more about this Debbie I shall be watching with interest as you <laughs> brilliant so I am going to stick to tradition for the final um, final little part as we wind up the, the conversation. I always like to ask my guests to share with the audience a quote, something that has meant something to them throughout their life, throughout their career, that's just meaningful to them. So can I ask you to, to kind of just to, to finish off our conversation, Debbie, with, with one of your favourite quotes? Um. Well, I'll give you a look before I give you a one that somebody else said, because that's probably the point of it. I will give you my own. Everybody knows they hear me saying it all the time is you can't hit what you're not aiming at. So it's one of those things. Me. And I and I use it probably too much, but it's it's really true. I love it. Um, 
and it's guided me for most of my life. You know, I mean, I've looked at aiming at things and people said, you know, if they look at you, they always think, how can you possibly do that? It's like, well, you know, you can't hit it if you're not aiming at it. So I'm at least going to aim at it. And then I think it's, I wouldn't say it's guided me through my life, but one that I came across um, a, a while back um, that I really like, and it's an anonymous um, quote, as far as I know, I've tried to find it, but it's an anonymous quote. And then it's, if you want to achieve greatness, stop asking for permission. That gives me goosebumps. It really does. Because we do ask for permission so often, don't we? Whether that's kind of... <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people do. Um, and I think whether it's consciously or subconsciously, and, and that whole kind of, I think, a combination of those two quotes, actually, aim as high as you like, go for it, um, and don't ask for permission just focus on on what you want to achieve. Debbie Francis, thank you so, so much for um, joining me on the podcast. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I'm looking forward to keeping in touch and finding out much more about this, uh, the irrelevance of leadership. That's fascinating me. That's kind of making my head whir. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much indeed. Thank you, Nina. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. My huge thanks to Debbie for sharing her thoughts and her insights with us on today's podcast. The next episode of Intuitive Insights will be with you on the 17th of June when I'm joined by Jenny Saunders, Customer Service Director for GTR.